it's asking for trouble in a way, writing about Bede and Abhijitananda, because people want one to compare them. And I usually resist comparing them. I think comparisons are fairly, um, tend to be rather a waste of time. But there are some interesting comparisons. And I, I just sort of suddenly thought on the way up here that rather than um, continually resist this, the comparisons, which I tend to do, whether um, I should sort of open the gates um, for you to, to make comparisons, as you, as you, because some of you were here last week, weren't you? Some, for some way. Anyway, some of you know about them. Well, anyway, if a comparison does strike anybody, um, I think it'd be quite interesting to hear it. Is that all right, that distance? Um, and the other thing I wanted to say at this point was that um, I rather welcome um, inter interruptions as long as I can do it like they do in Parliament. And what is it they say, um, I give way, or I'll give way in a moment, or I don't give way. <laughs> so if anybody suddenly feels something arising out of what I've just said, um, that'd be great, just chip in. But there's a curious sense in which I feel I shouldn't have written about Abhishekananda, I shouldn't be talking about him. Um, I shouldn't really talk about him at all because he was a very, very sort of private man. A lot of him wanted anonymity. He wanted to lose himself in the vastness of God. And he, he wanted to be so much one with reality that there was no separate self for him to claim. One of the things he said that never fails to move me was that he was a being lost in my source, a being lost in my fulfilment, and in that very loss, I am. And I, for me, that absolutely is Abhishek Tananda in that, in that sentence. His life was dedicated <coughs> to a search for oneness, for living in the present moment, for simply being, which of course isn't simple at all. He loved God or truth or reality, whatever your particular language is, was a rare passion. His search for the truth was so passionate, so dedicated, that at times he was overwhelmed by it, and for much of his life he was in anguish. He was a contemporary mystic, whose story is a story of transformation and whose life was lived in the tension of contradiction. And I think we have to remember all the time that the tensions he was experiencing, we may say, well, in 2006, we don't find that. We're not finding that particular tension. Well, if we're not, it's partly because of him and Bede and people like that. They've, they were real pioneers. They cut through something and opened the way for us to something quite illuminating and quite new. But the lovely thing about Abhishek, I can't manage the whole name, it's too long. <laughs> but he was, he was intensely human and extremely funny. He, he really never took himself too seriously and he loved conversation as much as he loved silence and solitude. You could say of him, as was said of St. Teresa of Avila, he was extraordinarily ordinary. He once pleaded, let me find fulfilment in each of my actions, eating my rice, washing my feet, 
listening to boring stories. I nobody can find fulfilment in listening to boring stories, I think pretty well. And he mocks himself deliciously when he writes of being invited to sit next to his guru in front of the other disciples and leading the discussion with them. Seeing himself with others' eyes, he wrote how it must have been mighty strange to see this Benedictine monk act seated on a tiger skin beside the master with bare shoulders, saluted with protestations. <laughs> so I'm going to talk for, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes about him and his... I was going to say outer story, but there really isn't an outer story with, with Abhishek. It's all, it's all an inner story. But to give a little chronology <coughs> on which to hang the real story, this extraordinary inner development. Then um, we're going to do what we did last week, and I've got some quotes. And um, I'm hoping that you will select from them as you feel. One of the odd things about his life was that most people leave something behind when they die. It mightn't be very much, but I mean, it mightn't, mightn't be a yacht and a million pounds, but uh, they leave something material and tangible. But apart from his writings and some very good friends, Abhishek Tananda left literally nothing at all. It was as if he'd never been. And if you actually go round the things he did own towards the end of his life, like the hut in the Himalayas, like the place where he had a tremendous, huge um, um, spiritual experience, things like that, they've disappeared. They've all gone. It, it's really odd. There's nothing left of him. But there are numerous articles, books and letters, revealing a man who must surely be regarded as one of the great mystics of our time and someone, I would claim, whose time has come. Abhishek Tananda broke boundaries. He was a mystic of such significance that it's hard to find many people that one can mention in the same breath. I would suggest the Dalai Lama, St John of the Cross, Meister Eckhart and Ramana Maharshi. I'm sure you'll come up with some more, but that's, I, I put him as high as that. So when he died, Swamiji was known as in India Swamiji. Um, he was simply removed from the face of the earth. There was nothing to hang on to, nothing to make into a relic. There seems to me to be a profound symbolism here. It's as if the spirit didn't want to hang on to anything material to do with Swamiji. We must meet him on the inside, try to understand his extraordinary inner life. He wrote something to a friend as early as 1956, which is, has echoes of this wish for the absence of anything material. He wrote, In the final analysis, the mystery is only accessible to the one who allows himself to be consumed in the fire, the fire of camphor, which leaves no residue at all. I tend to give dates um, for these quotes and these things because I think that's really very important. He went to India, and, well, this will all emerge, but he went to India in 48 and died in 73. So if a quote comes from 1950, you're in a sense looking at a very different man than if it came from 1970. So um, I, I'm always very interested in when he said something. Sometimes he amazes me and I think, oh, he must have said that the day before he died. And you find he said it in 1956 because some bits of him were already so far ahead. He was a man for whom... Sorry, theology. Yes, uh, Abhishek Tananda 
was a good theologian and he was respected by theologians. But we shouldn't, I don't think, consider him as a theologian because theology is from the outside looking in and Swamiji was on the inside looking out. Always he put experience first. Everything was on the touchstone of experience. And he only valued theology to the extent that it expresses experience and gives it a context. He was a man for whom God was everywhere, in practice, not just in theory. A man who told the religious sister looking to him for holy words that God is as much... Stefan, where's Stefan? Oh, he's not here, pity. Well, that's, that's it. He said, God is as much in the making of a good soup. <laughs> um, or the careful handing of a railway train, any train drivers here, uh, as in our, he is in our most profound meditations. So you can see why he's not an easy person to talk about. He was a voice calling, do not seek without, enter within yourself, everything is there or its equivalent in the Upanishads, seek to know the one who dwells in the cave of the heart. Now, let's try and earth it somewhere. Facts. 1910. He was born in 1910 in the most delightful little village. If you're ever in Britain, you ought to pay to visit, called Sambriac. It's 10 minutes from St. Malo, and it's absolutely enchanting. His parents ran a grocery shop, but they were all very devout, very French. In fact, they were very Breton, actually. He was the eldest by eight years, and this is actually quite significant because it made him almost a second father to his siblings and gave him a very special relationship to his mother. After all, he had her all to himself for eight years. He was also a very practical man, which somehow one doesn't expect, but maybe partly thrust on an elder, I'm not sure. He was a brilliant student. In 1929, he became a Benedictine monk at the monastery of Kerganar in South Brittany. He did this completely wholeheartedly, writing very typically, a monk cannot accept mediocrity. Only extremes are appropriate to him. He was not a man for half measures. His monastic routine was interrupted by the war. He did his military service before the war and then it was called up in 1940. He was actually captured and for about two, two, two days, I think. Um, his unit was surrounded by German troops and he managed to escape. The practical side became useful. He managed to escape before the na names were taken and he somehow managed to borrow a bike and rode back to Sambriac to his parents. <laughs> always, I, I, I suppose it isn't really funny, but it always amuses me, that story. The idea of a monk sort of suddenly escaping from the Germans in the middle of Brittany. On his return to the, to the monastery, he, made, he was made ceremoniaire, which is as a monk in charge of the liturgy. It's considered one of the most important parts. And remember, this is 1930s, early 30s, long before Second Vatican Council, everything very, very strict and punctilious. And I've been to a mass there, even now it's still quite strict there. But what it must have been like. And and Avishik was considered very, very punctilious and everything had to be spick and span, as he said. Yes. Could you just say a little bit about the 
Could you tell us what his name was? Oh, what a good question. Yes, it wasn't Abhishek Tanaka no. at all. And it's, it's hard to imagine this Breton boy. I'm sorry, or... I should have said you, thank you very much. I, I did actually say, but rather fleetingly, he was born Henri Lesau, Lesau, L-E-S-A-U-X. Henri. Henri Lesau. And I've seen van, vans in France. Um, yes. They seem to be to do with garages nowadays, the Lesau vans. Um, yes, despite being such a fussy liturgist, he was very popular because he was always very kind and they all liked him. And he was a very good and devoted monk and they all thought, everybody thought, he thought, probably, he'd spent you know, the rest of his life as a monk in this monastery. But and this can be dated with some accuracy, with hindsight. In about 1934, which was even before he was ordained, he started getting this extraordinary pull to India. Nobody quite knows why it was. Um, there wasn't much about India in the library. Um, there was no reason. He had an uncle who was a missionary in China who might have inspired him. But nobody quite knows what it was that he really got this passion. Only extremes are good enough for him, you see. Another extreme. First of all, this passionate calling to be a monk, and now this passionate calling to India. And he sat on this, this desire to, to go to India for 13 years. And this was very largely, I think, because of his mother. It wasn't until his mother died that he began to think of going. But his attitude to the monastery all that time and ever after, really, was, was very ambivalent. Because on the one hand, he'd taken a vow of stability, requiring him to remain in his monastery for the rest of his life. But he says contradictory things about it. Sometimes he would say, Kerganon has been the background of all that I was able to do in India. On the other hand, there was a negative side, which he said he admitted to a distaste for the monastery and says that it was in my deep dissatisfaction that my desire to come to India was born. So I think probably both were true. I think the regularity of the Benedictine life gave him a stability that carried him through the rest of his life. But equally, I'd, I can't see that he could ever have stuck it out. Um, I'd, Lawrence said, I don't know if any of you saw um, his review of my book in the tablet, but he made an interesting point which I hadn't really quite quite thought of, um, that, that actually it was a sort of failure of the Benedictines not to provide what he wanted. I, I rather want to talk to him about that, because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not convinced about that, but it's an interesting idea that it was something, it, and it is a very austere monastery, maybe a freer monastery would have given him what he wanted. Anyway, he started trying to go to India, and he wrote letters and he cajoled and he was let down and he was disappointed. And he wrote letters to his family saying, no, I'm not going again, I can't bear it. You know, it was, he was very emotional about the whole business of trying to get to India. But eventually he arrived, he, he, he went. And he arrived in India in August 1948. And one of the odd things about his arrival was that it was a year after independence and six months after the assassination of Gandhi but curiously, he writes little, if anything, about these momentous events. He joined Father Monchenin, who was an extraordinary French Taoist priest who had been living in India for some time. And in 1951, 
the ashram, which they both longed, which they called Shantivanam, Forest of Peace, was inaugurated. And thank you, that's when they took their Indian names. He should have been Aurelisso up to now. Um, and Aurelisso became Abhishekananda. He used his Indian name, Bede Griffiths never did, and Moshna never really did. I think maybe it's a measure of just how Indian um, Abhishek became, that he always, he never used Aurelisso again. For the next 18 years, he lived in Shantivanam, or perhaps it would be truer to say that Shantivanam was his base for he spent much of his time wandering around India, wanting to experience the country and its spirituality for himself. He was not content to read about it or even just to talk about it. Once again, experience. So he experienced every aspect. He went into the temples, he had a guru, went on pilgrimage. There really, I don't think there was a dimension of Indian life he didn't. Put, it, put some, some exploration into. The more I study Abhishekananda, the more I wonder exactly when he started losing interest in Shantivanam. For lose interest, he most certainly did. Somehow, the spark never really seems to have been lit, even in the early days. There was a problem with his relationship with Moshna. They, Moshna was very impractical. Abhishekananda resented having to do anything. Moshna was very unwell. He was never really well. Um, so there were difficulties for him too. But I think the real cause of his loss of interest was elsewhere. Because he'd only been in India for a few months when something happened which quite literally blew his mind and affected the rest of his life and more immediately affected his attitude to Shantivanam. He went to Tiruvannamalai, to the holy mountain of Arunachala, where the great sage Ramana Maharshi lived. And Ramana Maharshi was the big, big breakthrough. Meeting Ramana Maharshi was perhaps the greatest and most important moment of his life so far. Ramana taught mainly through silence, seeking what he called awakening. When pressed, he would constantly ask the question, who am I, what is the self? Sometimes he would answer his own question by, by saying, the self is only being, not being this or that, it's simply being. Though Ramana's writings had not been translated into French at the time, Abhishek Stander had read enough about him in articles, in various periodicals, to be convinced that his visit to the famous sage was going to be a high point in his life. He really thought this was going to be it. He, you have to remember with Abhishek, he was looking for awakening, looking for enlightenment, whatever word you like to use, really all his life. And he was constantly thinking he'd got there and constantly being disappointed. And on this occasion, he didn't get anywhere at all. He found it very flat. It was 1949, Ramana was 70 when they went to see him, and he was very frail after a life of asceticism. Nothing happened. He, he was rather outraged that he was called Bhagavan, which of course means Lord. He didn't think a holy man should be called Lord. He thought he looked just like his kindly old grandfather. What was so special about this man? All he could see was an old man with a gentle face and beautiful eyes. All through the meal which followed the darshan, 
Abhishek Tananda couldn't take his eyes off him. He watched him eat the same food as them, use his fingers just as they did, occasionally talk as they did. Why did he allow himself to be worshipped? Where was the halo? Ironically, in view of the importance Ramana was to have in his life, this first meeting was a huge disappointment. But that evening, later on, for the first time, Abhishekananda heard the Vedas chanted as timelessly and simply as they'd been chanted by the rishis in the forests for thousands of years. These archetypal sounds drew him as nothing so far had done. Something was stirring, though this was not destined to be the high experience for which he'd hoped. He woke next morning with a fever, and by the evening he knew he had to leave. He couldn't burden the ashram with illness. But before he left, he had an important encounter with a woman called Ethel Merston. She was a sensitive and kindly English woman who spent a lot of time there. She'd known Gurdjieff, Uspensky and Krishnamurti, and she always spent her holidays at Tiruvannamalai. On hearing of his disappointment, she spoke bluntly. She gave him quite a ticking off. She said, you've come here with far too much baggage. You want to know, you want to understand. You're insisting that what is intended for you should necessarily come to you by the path that you have determined. Make yourself empty. Simply be receptive. Make your meditation one of pure expectation. Then we could all learn from that. Perhaps the outer fever was an expression of some profound inner transformation. After Ethel's firm and kindly words, his consciousness mysteriously changed even before his mind recognised it. This is, he wrote a book about his trip to Arunachala and he, well, he spent several visits he made there. And this is a passage about suddenly seeing the quality of Ramana. The invisible halo of the sage had been perceived by something in me deeper than any words. Unknown harmonics awoke in my heart. A melody made itself felt, and especially an all-embracing ground bass. In the sage of Arunachala of our own time, I discerned the unique sage of the eternal India, the unbroken succession of her sages, her ascetics, her seers. It was as if the very soul of India penetrated to the very depths of my own soul and held mysterious communion with it. It was a call which pierced through everything, tore it apart and opened a mighty abyss. Six months later he returned, now released <coughs> from western clothes and comfortable in the carvey, the two strips of orange cloth only to find Ramana very ill with a tumour on his arm and unable to see anyone but his medical helpers. There's a lovely story about Ramana at that stage. I don't know if you've heard it. Apparently they were dressing with tumour on his arm, without anaesthetic or anything like that, and it was very painful. And somebody said to him, how can you bear it? Isn't it incredibly painful? And Ramana looked round, rather surprised, and said, painful? It's just my body. Um, Ethel Merston came to the rescue again and used her influence to find him somewhere to stay. 
And during this time there, Ramana began to hold darshan again. Abhishek Dananda simply saying of this that he did his best to keep his rational mind in abeyance and tried simply to attend to the hidden influence. He spent some time wandering around the caves, hewed into the side of the mountain, meditating in crevices in the rocks. He talked to Ramana's disciples, learned more about the sage he was coming to venerate so deeply. Once again it was Ethel Merston who opened his eyes to something else. That at Arunachala there was not only a great sage, but a temple, and most of all a mountain, Arunachala itself. Grace could be bestowed through any of these three channels. One day it would be the mountain itself that would draw him. He listened carefully, but it was to be some time before he really understood. An understanding served only to multiply the divisions inside him. He had already admitted to having two loves, India and France. Now more divisions were appearing. He was wearing the clothes of a Hindu ascetic and longing to pen- penetrate the spirit of Hinduism. Yet he was still a deep, deeply Christian French priest and of the old-fashioned variety. Never travelled without his mass kit. Couldn't, wouldn't say mass unless he could stand upright and had a door that could be locked to prevent the sacred vessels being profaned. Not conditions you find very readily in caves, which is where he was. Now, as he came to love the mountain, he found his heart divided between the sacred river Calvary, where Shantivanam was, and Father Manshalan, and the sacred mountain of Arunachala, home of Ramana Maharshi. It was two and a half years before he returned again, and by that time Ramana had died. And when he arrived at Arunachala, the Vedas were being chanted at Ramana's tomb. And once again, Abhishekdananda fell under their spell. Even more significantly, he discovered that there were hermitages scattered round the mountainside, and a Brahmin who looked after the visitors told Abhishekdananda there was an empty cave overlooking the temple and that he was welcome to settle there. He began to understand, if Ramana himself was so great, how much more so must be this Arunachala, the mountain which drew Ramana to himself. In silence you will teach me silence, Arunachala, he wrote. The mountain had begun to cast its spell over him. In his book about Arunachala, he talks about his relationship with the holy mountain in as profound and important way as the relationship between people. Here's one of the many moving passages he wrote about the mountain. It's all up with anyone who's paused even for a moment to attend to the gentle whisper of Arunachala. Arunachala has already taken him captive and will play with him without mercy to the bitter end. Darkness after light, desertion after embraces. He will never let him go until he has emptied him of everything in himself that is not the one and only Arunachala, and that still persists in giving him a name as one names another, until he has been finally swallowed up, having disappeared forever in the shining of his dawn light, Arunachala. I spent a long time, relatively, on these first 40 years 
as it really was the bedrock of Abishiktan as extraordinary in her life. Much more was to follow. He was live another 20 years, all of them spent in India, never went back to France, never went anywhere else. All that time working out the implications of his experiences, most of all, trying to reconcile the Christian faith from which he never wavered with the bliss and peace of Advaita. He once wrote, I'm like someone who has one foot on one side of the gulf and the other on the other side. I would like to throw a bridge across, but do not know where to fasten it. The walls are so smooth. He also did have a, a very eventful um, outer life, travelling widely all over India. He made numerous friends. He wrote 12 books, many articles, thousands of letters. His spiritual diary is one of the most extraordinary documents I've ever read. I mean, you sell it here, don't you? The, yeah. Well, I, I really. I think do, actually. We've got a life told through his letters. Sorry? A life told through his yes, letters. No, yes, that's good. Well, that's very important but too. But the one. Haven't got. Have you not got Descent to. Ascent to the Depth of the Heart? No. Descent to the Depth of the Heart? No, we don't have it. Oh, you, oh, you should get it, yes. It really is. It's, I have to admit, when, when I was started, when I was researching this, and Murray Rogers, who was a great friend of Abhishek Hernandez and lives in Oxford and helped me a lot, um, I mean, hugely. And um, I remember ringing him up when I started reading the, the, the diary in floods of tears. And I said, I can't write this book. I can't understand a word of it. I mean, it was so... It's a different language. And, and <laughs> Murray wonderfully said... Would be very odd if you could, <laughs> which is such a relief. Well, and eventually, by just reading and reading and reading, I got, came to understand a little bit. Shirley, quite apart from you not understanding, did he wrote in French, didn't he? Yes, but they've been translated. Everything was in French. Never wrote in English. Oh, it's so. There's some things were in English. He wrote some things in English, actually. It's quite odd that it always surprises me. Because his English wasn't that wonderful, but um, I mean I I can't tell you offhand exactly which was which, but um, Sachitananda, for instance, came out first in French, and was then translated, and and revised by him. That was quite a quite a crucial story because he cha he tended to change his mind about books, you see, about what he thought, you know. Mm -hmm. So Sachitananda is a good example of book. By the time he'd got to the publishers, he'd moved on and he didn't think that anymore. So when they wanted to translate it, he was frantically trying to revise it and take out the triumphalist Christian bits that he no longer believed, you know. Um, prayer was written first in English. In English? Uh, sorry, in French, in French. Um, but there were one or two that, that were written in English, and it always surprises me too. But I think they're nearly all available. The, some of the essays are not. And of course there's that incredible um, thing, Gohantara, which was the, the great work of his early years, which was um, refused by the Paris censor. It was too much for them, and they wouldn't they wouldn't let it be printed. No imprimatur. There are one or two chapters um, printed still in French, but if anybody wants a job, <laughs> translate the chapters on Gohantara. <laughs> so where have I got to? Um, 
his thousands of letters and his diaries, etc. He, he was often asked to take talk at conferences and give retreats and things like that, but only rarely did he accept. He, he was in almost every way a sannyasi, living a life of total renunciation. And he did learn at the very end of his life to leave everything behind. So he was propelled along this extraordinary path, a journey which took him from it's an extraordinary story, actually. A strict, old-fashioned, pre-Vatican II French priest. Everything spick and span, you know. And he end, ends his life, and long before the end of his life, wandering around India, dressed like a sadhu, um, saying mass on the banks of the Ganges, pulling a stone out of the river for the altar stone. And these incredible masses, Murray had, was the only person I know, and Raymond Panica, who'd actually been with these masses. Apparently they just went on and on and on. Couldn't be too long, they just went on and on and on, on the banks of the Ganges. Um, and able to refer to himself, I come back to that amazing quote, a being lost in my source, a being lost in my fulfilment. And in this very loss, I am. He knew that if we stand in the presence of reality, all we can do is open our mouths. He used to refer to it as the R of the Kena Upanishad, the cry R when lightning has flashed, the cry R when it made them blink. Such it is with respect to the divine sphere. So much about Abhishekananda is elusive crowded in the longing for the beyond, hard to articulate. There are, however, a few things one can hang on to that give a framework to his life in India, a life whose real significance, I can't say often enough, lies in the extraordinary depths of his inner journey. Shantivanam was inaugurated in 1950, just three weeks before the death of Ramana. Between 1949 and 1965, he was always making visits to Arunachana, the last one ending with wonderful appropriateness with a cosmic mass at the top of the mountain celebrated with his friend Raymond Panica. I'd forgiven, I'd give all my worldly wealth to be there. <laughs> quite incredible. In 1956 was an extraordinary thing in his life. There were three, he was always looking, you know, he was looking for enlightenment, so he was looking for teachers. And there were three particular teachers. One was a man called Puja, known as Harilal, and um, another was Dr. Mehta, who was one of Gandhi's doctors. And I, I've given them each a book in the, in the... I can't really sort of sum it up that quickly. They were extraordinary, those two. But the third one was, um, was Srik Nayananda, who was believed to be 120 years old and was known as the, the holy man of some unpronounceable place. To Lurika or something. Um, anyway, he went and he sat at the feet of Sri Gangananda, and that was a big, big uh, event in his life. And after that, he spent a month in total solid solitude, so silent that there was a revolving sort of window, like in an enclosed convent, and he didn't even see the hands that pushed his food through. And he was completely, completely alone for a month. And at the end of that month, 
he wanted to come back in again. He, he could hardly bear to leave. <laughs> Extraordinary. Wanted to go back. In 1959, trying to give you some dates, just in case, he went to the Himalayas the first time. And on the way, he stayed with Jyoti, at Jyoti Niketan Ashram, where this friend of mine, Murray Rogers, had a small community. And they became um, very good friends, and he quite often used to stay there. And it was through Murray and Jyoti Niketan that he met Laurie Baker, who was a Quaker, and um, discovered that there were other sorts of Christians besides Catholics. <laughs> took him an awful long time to discover <laughs> but he did. In the early 60s, he was involved with a series of ecumenical meetings known as the Qatat meetings. Qatat was the Swiss ambassador to Delhi, and he organised these meetings. And this turned into his book, which you have got upstairs, I think, Hindu-Christian Meeting Point. And Abhishek was the uh, animator, and that was the intellectual background against which he wrote this book. 1968, the urge to be a hermit, was getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And um, he eventually, I think he'd been pretty remiss about Chantivanam actually. He travelled, he was always somewhere else, you know. It, it didn't, I mean, it took B to make Chantivanam come alive in the way that it did. Um, now I'm starting comparing, aren't I? No, I'm not, that's a fact. <laughs> um, but in 68, he, he asked um, Father Machio of Kurishumana if anybody would take over the ashram. And in due course, Bede came and he left. And he went to live in his hut in Gyansu, which had been being built for him. Raymond Panniker gave it to him, gave him the land. And he lived there about half the year. He still couldn't resist travelling. You know, and people used to sort of say, you really mustn't do so much, you must stay and be a hermit, and you mustn't accept anybody in, anybody's invitations, except ours, of course, you know. But he had a lot of friends, and everybody said that, so. Um, 1971 was a very important year, because he met his greatest disciple, Mark Shadok. And that is, is a quite extraordinary story, the relationship with Mark Shadok. He'd had other disciples, but they none of them quite sort of like Mark. Mark was quite extraordinary and to give you an idea of how extraordinary that relationship was, a friend of mine was reading my book about Abhishek with great enjoyment and ringing me up every other day to tell me where he'd got to and how he was enjoying it and that sort of thing. And then suddenly there was silence. Oh, oh dear, <laughs> I didn't like it anymore. And um, so I didn't sort of force the pace, you know, I waited to hear from him. And about two months later, we were in touch about something else. I said, what happened? You didn't like it then, did you? That relationship with Mark, couldn't take it, couldn't take it. He broke all the boundaries. Mm -hmm. Now this man's wife is a psychotherapist. And I thought this was very interesting. And I said, but that's, that's the language of psychotherapy. You don't have boundaries, it's a relationship with God, do you? And he sort of agreed that this was the language of psychotherapy, but he couldn't take it, it was too much. Um, it, well, it is quite extraordinary, actually, the whole relationship. But, um, and a lot of questions are still being asked about Mark and whether he treated him properly, because Mark, in fact, disappeared. 
and nobody to this day knows whether he's alive or dead or where he is. Are there any, hmm? are there any suppositions as to what might have happened to him? I was intrigued yes, by Yes, well, the, he swims up the Ganges, is, 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 I think is the most sort of, I was going to say popular, doesn't sound quite right. But, yeah. um, I mean, it is pop possible that he became such a complete swami that he just disappeared. Um, but no, I mean, people have literally been hunting for him. The Mark Hunt. Excuse me, sorry. Did they ever publish his diaries? Because in your book you say yes. that are his diaries now published? They, they, they are, are going. To, they're going to be published quite soon, right. I think. There's yeah. a tremendous row going on. Well, yeah. uh, difficulties <laughs> about <laughs> ownership oh, right. because he left them to one person who gave them to another. Yeah. And um, and Roman Panicker is the great authority and theologically and. And as his friend as well, yeah. I think in the end, I think Ray Raymond is being responsible for them. Because it was the woman. I did, I did, I did manage to quote you a bit. You did mention in your book yes. you quoted from it. You well, said I'd, you'd seen a page, but they were not yet published. That's right. They had been given to one of his disciples. That's right. Yeah. Is she, is she the other claimant. Well, that's I don't. Honest, to be honest, I don't know exactly no, what's going on, but I think whatever it is, they've worked it out. Right. And they are going to be published. Mm. Very interesting, this. Mm. 1973, he had a heart attack. And he described this as the greatest moment of his life, the moment when he really understood. He was in a street in Rishikesh when it happened, and this is what he wrote to his sister in France. It was a marvellous spiritual experience, the discovery that awakening has nothing to do with any situation, even so-called life or so-called death, one is awake, and that is all. While I was walking on the sidewalk, on the frontier of the two worlds, I was magnificently calm, for I am, no matter in what world. I found the grail, and this extra lease of life, for such it is, can only be used for living and sharing this discovery. He was transformed. It was the moment when the lightning struck him and he died to everything as never before. The mist fell from his eyes and he was able to answer the question he'd asked ever since that day nearly 25 years earlier when he'd first asked, who am I? Five months later, on December the 7th, 1973, he died. So he only had five months of living that extraordinary experience that he'd spent his life looking for. You get um, Pete Griffiths after his stroke had a wonderful experience, didn't he? Sorry, can somebody... I'm sorry, Pete yeah. Griffiths after... Yes, I yes. Mean, he, he got this total love. That's right. And I, yes, I, I've often, I, that's a point of comparison, I quite agree. Mm -hmm. That Whereas Bede, um, Bede had this stroke and the experience of total love, very similar in some ways, also through illness. But Bede got better and he yeah. had two years yeah. to go around the world and all that. Mm. Abhishek never did get better. Um, he went to a nursing home and I didn't really leave it. But, but yes, the comparison is, is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Absolutely extraordinary. I've written a rather odd line here, which I hope I can justify. I said, you can hardly say anything about Swamiji without having to contradict it. He was less and less interested in trying to found anything or form anything. He became content not even to know where he was going. 
He was always on the move. He didn't really belong anywhere. He was a real nomad. He had this hut in the Himalayas, the indoor nursing home where he died, Shantivanam. But they were all bases from which to wander. He was hungry for beyond. He would never settle down. For many years, he wasn't a man of peace, but a man living through extreme tensions. He knew Advaita. I think I haven't properly talked about Advaita. Is anybody not happy about the word Advaita? Ad- Advaita is two Sanskrit words. Ad, no, not. And Dvaita, too. It simply means not to, non-duality. Sorry about that. But he knew that Advaita was true. He loved and believed in Christ and was seriously threatened by people who doubted he was a real Christian. Shaken to the core, if anyone doubted his orthodoxy. He wanted Roman Catholics to know he was a real Roman Catholic. How could he reconcile the two? That was the great tension of much of his life, causing him real anguish and suffering. He remained a priest and he remained a Benedictine monk, but he was a long way from the average expectations of a Catholic priest. He was beyond all structures, yet he remained a disciple of Jesus. The level of knowing beyond any words. In the end, even the Mass became unimportant. He could celebrate or not. Everything was of a divine, so it didn't really matter. But when he did say Mass, as I was saying earlier, they were momentous occasions. As far as the church is concerned, he never left the church, but he did become distanced from it. He came to see more and more clearly the false duality of the church. For instance, in pe- regarding people as active or contemplative. I mean, John Main people more than anybody um, don't fall into that trap, do they? You could be active and contemplative. Duality simply didn't exist for him. He couldn't make distinctions. He couldn't insist on keeping Christianity separate and on top or claim that Christian mysticism took people further. But one distinction he did make, and that was between being and doing. That was a constant. He was very at home with utterly secular people, delighted when one of his nieces who came out to see him in India and went back saying, my uncle's a hippie. (laughs) He loved that. At um, Kurganon, he was content to be the monk who was always the one to be put in charge of practical affairs. In India, one of his funny little bits of practicality is he would put his communion wine in an old toothpaste tube so as not to offend the Hindus, because wine wasn't allowed into the temples, and so he put it in the toothpaste tube. He was a man of the world in some ways. If you met him, his laughter, his readiness to argue, his seriousness, his interest in what people were eating, what should be done about the beggars, what was going on. He was a sort of French ramener. He also felt the loneliness of the prophet. He was uneasy except with people who have an intuition of what he called this transcendent level. He wanted to invite people to make this experience their own. It was experience he valued. He, said, he once said he only needed theologians to interpret what was happening to him. Most of all, he wanted simply to be. As he wrote to Raymond Panneker, to do, to do what? I'm not here to do anything, but simply to be. I want to spend just the last few minutes. Um, I've got some quotes again, um, which I rather think we might like to... 
um, read in a slightly different way because whereas the bead bits were quite long and quite often quite reasoned sort of sorts, these are more sort of like almost like expostulations and sort of utterings in spite of himself. And I don't know if you'd like to do it um, like a lectio divina, do you think? Um, in the same way that um, Marianne, uh, if Marianne's got a, a, a copies, um, I've got one. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, if you would. Thank you. Um, to choose choose one that appeals to you, and, um, and and we'll do this after after the soup break, and just say it, um, read it. And then make your own. What what I wondered is, um, Kim, do you think that would work as a sort of compromise, lecture divina, in the sense that the person who chooses and reads has the first reaction quite to themselves and uninterrupted, yes. but that after after that's been really heard, then people are free to come in, that's sort of compromise. Is that okay? <coughs> and I was just going to say. Um, a few words about some of the categories that I've got there. I think you'll find quite a lot about being, um, with some of which I've said, he, his emphasis, his longing simply to be. He felt India helped him simply to be, to learn that being is the most intense form of action. He wrote to a friend that the Ganga is there and I'm learning simply to gaze at it. The simple act of looking, just gazing, with no further thought of the one who is looking, or the look itself, or what is looked at. It's so difficult for our Western mentality. And then, just before he died, he said, my work is to be. The really important times in my life are when I simply am. I don't think these ones are there. I'm not, um, well, the, the really important times in my life are when I simply am established within. And then this wonderful one, um, which I, I'm always tempted, if I know a friend of mine is dying, I'm always tempted to say to send this, but I'm never quite sure if, if it's all right. But he said, when, when he was dying himself, he said, and then the Lord takes you seriously, removes every fine thought, and leaves you there, capable of nothing more than simply being there. Living in the present moment is, of course, very close to being. He was absolutely convinced of the, he would have loved the power of now by a cartel, I'm sure he would. Um, he was convinced the only reality was now. And um, rather like an earlier quote I, wrote, I read, he said, the moment when I drink my soup or wash my feet just as much as when I pray or nestle close to the Lord. And he once said he only had one sermon realize what you are at this very moment. Lots been said and written about Advaita, but I think we can restrict ourselves to the basic understanding of the word, meaning um, non-duality, not to. But his struggle to reconcile Advaita with Christianity was really terrifying. It was as if there were two men in the depths of me, he said. How could he reconcile the uniqueness of Christianity with the absoluteness of the Advaitic experience? Only by finding a sense of Christ beyond all forms, an Advaita which was not opposed to Christianity, 
or if you like, a Christian Advaita. Though some people don't like that expression. It's a bit like climbing a mountain. You reach a glorious summit and you think you've got to the top. You think, thought he'd understood, and then you find, only to find greater heights ahead of him. And he looks back and last year I thought I understood. I don't, I didn't, I still don't. And sometimes it would suddenly appear to be quite simple. And he would write something like, for every exchange, every kiss is the mystery of the not two. Or by observing that Jesus lived this non-duality simply by gazing like a child at his Abba. We're talking about a journey to the depths of the soul and beyond, where dualism cannot live, and where there is only God. Silence. He knew that the essential thing was to maintain interior silence, something he said he found difficult, but which, given what people who knew him say about his radiant presence, he must have learnt in the end. He knew, too, that silence can be dangerous if one becomes attached to it. The really important thing is beyond silence, but it only can be reached through silence. The great silence itself, in which God himself is, is not the negation of thought, it is its transcendence. I heard a wonderful story about Abhishek and silence. Somebody um, met actually my publisher in America and said, ah, oh, Abhishek Tananda, he said, there's a man who can talk 24 hours a day about silence. <laughs> <laughs> he was also gloriously ambivalent about solitude. He loved it and needed it, yet he was very aware of how difficult it is. He, he didn't really want to share his life, and he was rather relieved when people who were staying it with him left him to his solitude. You know how nice it is our friends to see when sometimes they drop in to see. But nicer still it is to know that when they've had their tea, they'll go. <laughs> I was brought up to that. Um, he wrote a lot about solitude. Uh, one line I like very much is, you do not go into solitude in order to find God. You go to the desert because there's nothing else but God, and God makes himself solitary. Experience. Experiences. Of, I, want, I, I can't remember now which ones are in that list, but have you got the, about the espresso bar? The espresso bar in the corner of the Ghats is no less Brahmic than the arity or the ecstatic mass. This is precisely what we have to discover and live now, the expression of the innermost and unique mystery in the most commonplace action or meeting. So, I hope we'll have some lots from you, everything from you in the second half. <laughs>